Hello, everyone. This is Ken, and I really want to thank you all for listening to my podcast. I hope you all enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy creating it. I have a few favors that I'd like to ask of you to do for me, if you could. One would be to tell a friend. If you enjoy it and you think your friends might enjoy it, then please spread the word. There are about a million and one podcasts out there, and it's hard to stand out in that kind of a crowd. So spreading the word would really help. Another way to spread the word is to write a review. People look for reviews to find out which podcasts are good, and it's as simple as touching four out of five stars or whatever you're feeling that day, or writing a few words to let people know what the podcast is all about. And finally, I'd like to ask your thoughts and get your input on what book you'd like me to read. I have a couple in mind that I really want to read, but I also want to hear from you. So you could make a mention of it in the review you're going to write, or you can send me an email at kenreadstheclassics at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And I hope you enjoy this next episode of Ken Reads the Classics. Hello and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. Today we're going to continue with Treasure Island or Jim's Adventures on the High Seas. Chapter 15, The Man of the Island. From the side of the steep and stony hill, a spout of gravel fell, rattling and bounding through the trees. My eyes turned instinctively in that direction, and I saw a figure leap with great rapidity behind the trunk of a pine. What it was, whether bear or man or monkey, I could in no wise tell. It seemed dark and shaggy. More I knew not. But the terror of this new apparition brought me to a stand. It now seemed they cut me off on both sides. Behind me the murderers, before me this lurking nondescript, and immediately I began to prefer the dangers that I knew to those I knew not. Silver himself appeared less terrible in contrast with this creature of the woods, and I turned on my heel, and looking sharply behind me over my shoulder, began to retrace my steps in the direction of the boats. Instantly the figure reappeared, and making a wide circuit began to head me off. I was tired, at any rate, but I had fresh legs. Only vanity would make me contend in speed with such an adversary. From trunk to trunk the creature flitted like a deer, running man-like on two legs, but unlike any man that I had ever seen, stooping almost double as it ran. Yet a man it was, I could no longer doubt that. I began to recall what I heard of cannibals. I was within an ace of calling for help. But the mere fact that he was a man, however wild, somewhat reassured me, and my fear of silver began to revive in proportion. I stood still, therefore, and cast about for some method of escape, and as I was so thinking, the recollection of my pistol flashed into my mind, 
As soon as I remembered I was not defenseless, courage glowed again in my heart, and I set my face resolutely for this man of the island, and walked briskly towards him. By this time he concealed himself behind another tree trunk, but he watched me closely, for as soon as I began to move in his direction, he reappeared and took a step to meet me. Then he hesitated, drew back, came forward again, and at last, to my wonder and confusion, threw himself on his knees and held out his clasped hands in supplication. At that, I once more stopped. Who are you? I asked. Ben Gunn, he answered, and his voice sounded hoarse and awkward like a rusty lock. I'm poor Ben Gunn, I am, and I haven't spoke with a human these three years. I could now see that he was quite like myself and that his features were even pleasing. The sun burnt his skin wherever it was exposed and turned his lips black and his fair eyes looked quite startling in so dark a face. Of all the beggar men that I ever saw or fancied, he was the chief for raggedness. He made his clothes with tatters of old ship's canvas and old sea cloth. He held together this extraordinary patchwork by a system of the most various and incongruous fastenings, brass buttons, bits of stick, and loops of terry gaskin. About his waist he wore an old brass-buckled leather belt, which was the one thing solid in his whole accoutrement. Three years, I cried. Were you shipwrecked? Nay, mate, said he, marooned. I knew the word, and I knew it stood for a horrible kind of punishment common enough among the buccaneers, in which the offender is put ashore with a little powder and shot and left behind on some desolate and distant island. Maroon three years ago, he continued, and lived on goats since then, and berries and oysters. Wherever a man is, says I, a man can do for himself. But, mate, my heart is sore for English diet. You mightn't happen to have a piece of cheese about you now. No? Well, many's the long night I've dreamed of cheese, toasted mostly, and woke up again, and here I were. If I can ever get aboard again, said I, you shall have cheese by the stone. All this time he felt the stuff of my jacket, smoothing my hands, looking at my boots, and generally, in the intervals of his speech, showing a childish pleasure in the presence of a fellow creature. But at my last words he perked up into a kind of startled slyness. If ever you can get aboard again, says you, he repeated, why, now who's to hinder you? Not you, I know, I replied. And right you was, he cried. Now you, what do you call yourself, mate? Jim, I told him. Jim, Jim, says he. This quite pleased him, apparently. Well, now, Jim, I've lived as rough as you'd be ashamed to hear of. Now, for instance, you wouldn't think I had a pious mother to look at me, he asked. Why, no, not in particular, I answered. Ah, well, said he, but I had remarkable pious, and I was a civil pious boy and could rattle off my catechism that fast as you couldn't tell one word from another. 
and here's what it come to, Jim, and it begun with a chuck farthin on the blessed gravestones. That's what it begun with, but it went further than that, and so my mother told me and predict the whole she did, the pious woman. But it were providence that put me here. I've thought it all out in this here lonely island, and I'm back on piety. You don't catch me tasting rum so much, but just a thimbleful for luck, of course, the first chance I have. I'm bound I'll be good, and I see the way, too. And Jim, looking all around him and lowering his voice to a whisper, I'm rich. I now felt sure that the poor fellow had gone crazy in his solitude, and I suppose I must have shown the feeling in my face, for he repeated the statement hotly. Rich! Rich, I says, and I'll tell you what, I'll make a man of you, Jim. Ah, Jim, you'll bless your stars, you will. You was the first that found me. And at this there came suddenly a lowering shadow over his face, and he tightened his grasp upon my hand and raised a forefinger threateningly before my eyes. Now, Jim, you tell me true. That ain't Flint's ship, he asked. At this, a happy inspiration came to me. I began to believe that I found an ally, and I answered him at once. It's not Flint's ship, and Flint is dead. But I'll tell you true, as you ask me, there are some of Flint's hands aboard. Worse luck for the rest of us. Not a man with with one leg, he gasped. Silver, I asked. Ah, silver, says he. That were his name. He's the cook and the ringleader, too. He still held me by the wrist, and at that he gave it quite a ring. If you was sent by Long John, he said, I'm as good as pork and I know it, but where was you, do you suppose? I made up my mind in a moment, and by way of answer told him the whole story of our voyage and the predicament in which we found ourselves. He heard me with the keenest interest, and when I finished, he patted me on the head. "'You're a good lad, Jim,' he said, "'and you're all in a clove hitch, ain't you? "'Well, just put your trust in Ben Gunn. "'Ben Gunn's the man to do it. "'Would you think it likely, now that your squire would prove a liberal-minded one in case of help, "'him being in a clove hitch, as you remark?' I told him the squire was the most liberal of men. Ay, but you see, returned Ben Gunn, I didn't mean giving me a gate to keep and a suit of livery clothes and such. That's not my mark, Jim. What I mean is, would he be likely to come down to the tune of, say, one thousand pounds out of money that's as good as a man's own already? I am sure he would, said I. As it was, all hands were to share. And a passage home, he added with a look of great shrewdness. Why, I cried, the squire's a gentleman, and besides, if we got rid of the others, we should want you to help work the vessel home. Ah, said he, so you would, and he seemed very much relieved. Now, I'll tell you what, he went on. So much I'll tell you and no more. I were in Flint's ship when he buried the treasure. He and six along, six strong men. 
They was ashore nigh on a week, and us standing off and on in the old walrus. One fine day up went the signal, and here come Flint by himself in a little boat, and his head done up in a blue scarf. The sun was getting up, and mortal white he looked about the cutwater. But there he was, you mind, and the six all dead, dead and buried. How he done it, none a man aboard us could make out. It was battle, murder, and sudden death. Leastways, him against six. Billy Bones was the mate. Long John, he was quartermaster, and they asked him where the treasure was. Ah, says he, you can go ashore if you like and stay, he says, but as for the ship, she'll beat up for more by thunder. That's what he said. Well, I was in another ship three years back, and we sighted this island. Boys, said I, here's Flint's treasure. Let's land and find it. The captain was displeased at that, but my messmates were all of a mind and landed. Twelve days they looked for it, and every day they had the worst word for me. Until one fine morning all hands went aboard. As for you, Benjamin Gunn, says they, here's a musket, they says, and a spade and a pickaxe. You can stay here and find Flint's money for yourself, they says. Well, Jim, three years have I been here, and not a bite of English diet from that day to this. But now, you look here, look at me. Do I look like a man before the mast? No, says you, nor I weren't neither, says I. And with that he winked and pinched me hard. Just you mention them words to your squire, Jim, he went on. Nor he weren't neither, that's the words. Three years he were the man of this island, light and dark, fair and rain, and sometimes he would maybe think upon a prayer, says you, and sometimes he would maybe think of his old mother, so be as she's alive, you'll say, but the most part of Gunn's time, this is what you'll say, the most part of his time was took up with another matter, and then you'll give him a nip like I do, and he pinched me again in the most confidential manner. Then, he continued, then you'll up and you'll say this. Gunn is a good man, you'll say, and he puts a precious sight more confidence. A precious sight, mind that, in a gentleman born than in these gentlemen of fortune, having been one himself. Well, I said, I don't understand one word that you've been saying, but that's neither here nor there, for how am I to get on board? Ah, said he, that's the hitch for sure. Well, there's my boat that I made with my two hands. I keep her under the white rock. If the worst come to the worst, we might try that after dark. Hi, he broke out. What's that? For just then, although the sun had still an hour or two to run, all the echoes of the island awoke and bellowed to the thunder of a cannon. They have begun to fight, I cried. Follow me. And I began to run towards the anchorage, my terrors all forgotten, while close at my side the marooned man in his goatskins trotted easily and lightly. Left, left, says he. Keep to your left hand, mate Jim. 
under the trees with you. There's where I kill my first goat. They don't come down here now. They're all mastheaded on them mountings for fear of Benjamin Gunn. And there's the Setterberry. Cemetery, he must have meant. You see the mounds? I come here and prayed, nows and thens, when I thought maybe a Sunday would be about due. It weren't quite a chapel, but it seemed more solemn-like. And then, says you, Ben Gunn was short-handed. No chapling, nor so much as a mible and a flag, you says. So he kept talking as I ran, neither expecting nor receiving any answer. First we heard cannon shot, then, after a considerable interval, a volley of small arms. Another pause, and then, not a quarter of a mile in front of me, I beheld the Union Jack flutter in the air above a wood. Well, we will leave Jim wondering how his friends captured the stockade, and before we move into Part 4, Chapter 16, we have a few terms to cover. First, we have Lily Bolero, and Lily Bolero is a marching song often used to introduce a satirical ballad of some sort, or maybe a farcical ballad, and we will hear the Pirates now. Let's call them pirates. We will hear the pirates whistling the lily bolero. The next phrase we have is clapped a stout log house. It took me a little bit to look this up and figure out what they were talking about, but basically it just means to build a house with clapboards, and clapboards are just simply siding. Next we have a paling, and a paling is just another name for a palisade. And now you're going to ask yourself, what's a palisade? Well, a palisade is a fence made of logs, limbs, or lumber. All right. And next we have jolly boat. And this will be used interchangeably in the text to refer to the gigs. And the gigs, of course, as we know, are just another name for small boats. All right. Next we have painter. And that is a line attached to the bow of a boat, which they use to tie up to a dock or to a tree if it's on a beach or something like that. All right, moving on, we have galley pot. And galley pot is just a simple ceramic bowl or container. And finally, we have gunnel. And gunnel is the uppermost part of the sides of the ship that uh, water often comes over or people jump over the gunnel or they hang out alongside the gunnel. We spell it G-U-N-W-A-L-E, but with all the copious drinking that takes place in this ailing life, we just pronounce it gunnel. And the next thing I should mention, it's not really a term, but at this point in the story, in part four, the doctor actually creates the narrative and tells us the story. So it's a bit of a shift in voice and viewpoint as we move forward in part four. And now, finally, we'll find out what happens next in Treasure Island. Chapter 16 Narrative continued by the doctor, how the ship was abandoned. 
At about half past one, three bells in the sea phrase, two boats went ashore from the Hispaniola. The captain, the squire, and I talked matters over in the cabin. Had wind even breathed, we would have fallen on the six mutineers left aboard with us, slipped our cable, and away to sea. But we wanted for wind and received none. And to complete our helplessness, down came Hunter with the news that Jim Hawkins had slipped into a boat and was gone ashore with the rest. It never occurred to us to doubt Jim Hawkins, but we became alarmed for his safety. With the men in the temper they were in, it seemed an even chance if we should see the lad again or no. We ran on deck. The pitch bubbled in the seams. The nasty stench of the place turned me sick. If ever a man smelt fever and dysentery, it was in that abominable anchorage. The six scoundrels sat grumbling under a sail in the forecastle. Ashore we could see the gigs made fast and a man sitting in each, hard by where the river runs in. One of them whistled Lily Bolero. Waiting strained our patience, and we decided that Hunter and I should go ashore with the jolly boat in quest of information. The gigs leaned to their right, so Hunter and I pulled straight in, in the direction of the stockade, according to the chart. The two mutineers who guarded their boats seemed in a bustle at our appearance. Lily Bolero stopped off, and I could see the pair discussing what they ought to do. Had they gone and told Silver, all might have turned out differently. But they had their orders, I suppose, and decided to sit quietly where they were and hark back again to Lily Bolero. I spied a slight bend in the coast, and I steered so as to put it between us and the mutineers. Even before we landed, we lost sight of the gigs. I jumped out and came as near running as I durst, with a big silk handkerchief under my hat for coolness sake, and a brace of pistols ready, primed for safety. I ran about a hundred yards when I reached the stockade. This is how it appeared. A spring of clear water rose almost at the top of a knoll. Well on the knoll, and enclosing the spring, Captain Flint's crew had built a stout log house of clapboards, fit to hold two score of people in a pinch, and loopholed for musketry on either side. All round this they cleared a wide space, and then they completed the thing with a paling six feet high, without door or opening, too strong to pull down without time and labor, and too open to shelter the besiegers. The spring particularly took my fancy, for though we had a good enough place of it in the cabin of the Hispaniola, with plenty of arms and ammunition, and things to eat, and excellent wines, we overlooked one thing, water. As I thought this over, there came ringing over the island the cry of a man at the point of death. I was not new to violent death, for I served His Royal Highness the Duke of Cumberland, and got a wound myself at Fontenoy, but I know my pulse went dot and carry one. Jim Hawkins is gone, I believed at first. It is something to have been an old soldier, but more still to have been a doctor. There is no time to dilly-dally in our work, and so I made up my mind instantly, and with no time lost, returned to the shore and jumped on board the jolly boat. By good fortune, Hunter pulled a good oar. We made the water fly, and the boat soon came alongside the schooner, and I climbed aboard her. 
I found them all shaken from the scream, as was natural. Squire Trelawney was sitting down, as white as a sheet, thinking of the harm he had led us to, the good soul. And one of the six forecastle hands was little better. There's a man, says Captain Smollett, nodding towards him, new to his work. He came nigh hand fainting, doctor, when he heard the cry. Another touch of the rudder and that man would join us. I told my plan to the captain, and between us we settled on the details of its accomplishment. We put old Red Ruth in the gallery between the cabin and the forecastle, with three or four loaded muskets and a mattress for protection. Hunter brought the boat round under the stern port, and Joyce and I set to work loading her with powder tins, muskets, bags of biscuits, kegs of pork, a cask of cognac, and my invaluable medicine chest. In the meantime, the squire and the captain stayed on deck, and the latter hailed the coxswain, who was the principal man aboard. Mr. Hands, he said, here are two of us with a brace of pistols each. If any one of you six make a signal of any description, that man's dead. This threat took them back a good deal, and after a little consultation, one and all tumbled down the fore companion, thinking, no doubt, to take us on the rear. But when they saw Red Ruth waiting for them in the sparred galley, they went about ship at once, and a head popped out again on deck. Down, dog, cried the captain, and the head popped down again, and we heard no more for the time of these six very faint-hearted seamen. By this time, tumbling things in as they came, we loaded the jolly boat as much as we dared. Joyce and I got out through the stern port, and we made for shore again as fast as oars could take us. This second trip fairly aroused the watchers along shore. They stopped whistling Lily Bolero once again, and just before we lost sight of them behind the little point, one of them whipped ashore and disappeared. I had half a mind to change my plan and destroy their boats, but I feared that Silver and the others might be close at hand, and we might lose all by trying for too much. We soon touched land in the same place as before, and set to provision the blockhouse. All three made the first journey, heavily laden, and tossed our stores over the palisade. Then, leaving Joyce to guard them, one man to be sure, but with half a dozen muskets, Hunter and I returned to the jolly boat and loaded ourselves once more. So we proceeded without pausing to take breath, till the whole cargo was bestowed. Then Hunter and Joyce took up their position in the blockhouse, and I, with all my power, sculled back to the Hispaniola. That we should have risked the second boatload seems more daring than it really was. They had the advantage of numbers, of course, but we had the advantage of arms. Not one of the men ashore had a musket, and before they could get within range for pistol shooting, we flattered ourselves we should be able to give a good account of half a dozen at least. Squire Trelawney waited for me at the stern window. All his faintness gone from him. He caught the painter and made it fast, and we fell to loading the boat for our very lives. We loaded pork, powder, and biscuits, as well as a musket and a cutlass apiece for the squire and me, and Red Ruth and the captain. The rest of the arms and powder we dropped overboard in two fathoms and a half of water. We could see the bright steel shining far below us in the sun as the weapons rested on the clean, sandy bottom. By this time the tide was beginning to ebb, 
and the ship swung round to her anchor. We heard voices faintly hallooing in the direction of the two gigs, and though this reassured us that Joyce and Hunter were safe, well to the eastward and in the log cabin, it warned our party to be off. Red Ruth retreated from his place in the gallery and dropped into the boat, which we then brought round to the ship's counter to be handier for Captain Smollett. Now, men, said he to the mutineers below, do you hear me? There was no answer from the forecastle. It is to you, Abraham Gray, it is to you I am speaking. Still no reply. Gray, resumed Mr. Smollett a little louder. I am leaving this ship, and I order you to follow your captain. I know you are a good man at bottom, and I dare say not one of the lot of you's as bad as he makes out. I have my watch here in my hand. I give you thirty seconds to join me in. There was a pause. Come, my fine fellow, continued the captain. Don't hang so long in stays. I'm risking my life and the lives of these good gentlemen every second. There was a scuffle, a sound of blows, and out burst Abraham Gray with a knife cut on the side of his cheek. He came running to the captain like a dog to the whistle. I'm with you, sir, said he, and the next moment he and the captain dropped aboard of us, and we shoved off and gave way. We cleared out of the ship and pulled to reach shore in our log cabin stockade. Chapter 17. Narrative Continued by the Doctor. The Jolly Boat's Last Trip. The little jolly boat struggled on this fifth trip for several reasons. In the first place, we gravely overloaded the little galley pot of a boat. Five grown men, and three of them, Trelawney, Red Ruth, and the captain, over six feet high, already weighed more than she was meant to carry. Add to that the powder, pork, and bread bags. Water lipped over the gunwale astern. Several times we shipped a little water, which soaked my breeches and the tails of my coat before we went a hundred yards. The captain made us trim the boat, and we got her to lie a little more evenly. All the same, we were afraid to breathe. In the second place, the tide began to ebb, making a strong rippling current running westward through the basin, and then southward and seaward down the straits by which we entered in the morning. Even the ripples posed a danger to our overloaded craft, but the worst of it was that the ebb swept us out of our true course and away from our proper landing place behind the point. If we let the current have its way, we should come ashore beside the gigs, where the pirates might appear at any moment. I steered while Captain Smollett and Red Ruth, two fresh men, pulled at the oars. "'I cannot keep her head for the stockade, sir,' said I to the captain. "'The tide keeps washing her down. Could you pull a little stronger?' "'Not without swamping the boat,' said he. "'You must bear up, sir, if you please. Bear up until you see your gaining.' I tried, and found by experiment— that the tide would keep sweeping us westward unless I laid her head due east, or just about right angles to the way we ought to go. We'll never get ashore at this rate, said I. If it's the only course that we can lie, sir, we must even lie it, returned the captain. 
We must keep upstream. You see, sir, he went on, if once we drop to leeward of the landing place, it's hard to say where we should get ashore, besides the chance of being boarded by the gigs, whereas the way we go the current must slacken, and then we can dodge back along the shore. The current's less already, sir, said the man Gray, who was sitting in the foresheets. You can ease her off a bit. Thank you, my man, said I, quick as if nothing had happened, for we had all quietly made up our minds to treat him like one of ourselves. Suddenly the captain spoke up again, and I thought his voice was a little changed. The gun, said he. I have thought of that, said I, for I made sure he was thinking of a bombardment of the fort. They could never get the gun ashore, and if they did, they could never haul it through the woods. Look astern, doctor, replied the captain. We entirely forgot the long nine, and there, to our horror, we saw the five rogues busy about her, getting off her jacket, as they called the stout tarpaulin cover under which she sailed. Not only that, but it flashed into my mind at the same moment that we left behind the round shot and the powder for the gun, and a stroke with an axe would put it all into the possession of the evil ones aboard. Israel was Flint's gunner, said Gray, hoarsely. At any risk, we put the boat's head direct for the landing place. By this time, we had got so far out of the run of the current that we kept steerage way even at our necessarily gentle rate of rowing, and I could keep her steady for the goal. But the worst of it was that with the course I now held, we turned our broadside instead of our stern to the Hispaniola and offered a target like a barn door. I could hear as well as see that brandy-faced rascal Israel hands plumping down a round shot on the deck. "'Who's the best shot?' asked the captain. "'Mr. Trelawney, out and away,' said I. "'Mr. Trelawney, will you please pick me off one of these men, sir? Hands, if possible,' said the captain. Trelawney was cool as steel. He looked to the priming of his gun. "'Now,' cried the captain, Easy with that gun, sir, or you'll swamp the boat. All hands stand by to trim her when he aims. The squire raised his gun. The rowing ceased, and we leaned over to the other side to keep the balance, and all was so nicely contrived that we did not ship a drop. By this time, they had slewed the gun round upon the swivel, and hands at the muzzle with the rammer was in consequence the most exposed. However, we had no luck. For just as Trelawney fired, down he stooped. The ball whistled over him, and one of the other four fell. A great number of voices from aboard and ashore echoed the cry he gave. Here come the gigs, sir, said I. Give way then, cried the captain. We mustn't mind if we swamp her now. If we can't get ashore, all's up. Only one of the gigs is being manned, sir, I added. The crew of the other most likely going round by shore to cut us off. They'll have a hot run, sir, returned the captain. Jack ashore, you know. It's not them I mind. It's the round shot. Carpet bulls, my lady's maid couldn't miss. Tell us, squire. When you see the match, and we'll hold water. 
In the meanwhile, we made headway at a good pace for a boat so overloaded, and we shipped but little water in the process. We closed in, thirty or forty strokes, and we should beach her, for the ebb disclosed a narrow belt of sand below the clustering trees. We no longer feared the gig, the little point already concealed it from our eyes. The ebb tide, which had so cruelly delayed us, now made reparation and delayed our assailants. The gun remained the one source of danger. If I durst, said the captain, I'd stop and pick off another man. But it was plain that they meant nothing should delay their shot. They never so much as looked at their fallen comrade, though he still lived, and I could see him trying to crawl away. Ready, cried the squire. Hold, cried the captain, quick as an echo. He and Red Ruth backed with a great heave that sent her stern bodily under water. The report fell in at the same instant of time. Where the ball passed, not one of us precisely knew, but I fancy it must have been over our heads and that the wind of it may have contributed to our disaster. Jim did not hear the squire's shot that killed one of the mutineers, but he heard the long nine as they fired upon us. At any rate, the boat sank by the stern, quite gently, in three feet of water, leaving the captain and myself facing each other on our feet. The other three took complete headers and came up again, drenched and bubbling. So far there was no great harm, no lives were lost, and we could wade ashore in safety. But all our stores sank to the bottom, and to make things worse, only two guns out of five remained in a state for service. I had snatched mine from my knees and held it over my head by a sort of instinct. As for the captain, he carried his over his shoulder by a bandolier, and, like a wise man, lock uppermost. The other three went down with the boat. To add to our concern, we heard voices already drawing near us in the woods along shore, and we not only feared being cut off from the stockade in our half-crippled state, but also, if a half-dozen mutineers attacked Hunter and Joyce, whether they would have the sense and conduct to stand firm. Hunter was steady, that we knew. Joyce was a doubtful case, a pleasant, polite man for a valet and to brush one's clothes, but not entirely fitted for a man of war. With all this in our minds, we waded ashore as fast as we could, leaving behind us the poor jolly boat and a good half of all our powder and provisions. Chapter 18 Narrative Continued by the Doctor End of the First Day's Fighting we made our best speed across the strip of wood that now divided us from the stockade, and at every step we took, the voices of the buccaneers rang nearer. Soon we could hear their footfalls as they ran, and the cracking of the branches as they breasted across a bit of thicket. I began to see we should have a brush for it in earnest, and looked to my priming. Captain, said I, Trelawney is the dead shot. Give him your gun. His own is useless. They exchanged guns, and Trelawney, silent and cool as he had been since the beginning of the bustle, hung a moment on his heel to see that all was fit for service. At the same time, observing Gray to be unarmed, I handed him my cutlass. It did all our hearts good to see him spit in his hand, 
knit his brows, and make the blade sing through the air. It was plain from every line of his body that our new hand was worth his salt. Forty paces farther we came to the edge of the wood and saw the stockade in front of us. We struck the enclosure about the middle of the south side, and almost at the same time, seven mutineers, Job Anderson, the boatswain at their head, appeared in full cry at the southwestern corner. They paused as if taken aback, and before they recovered, not only the squire and I, but Hunter and Joyce from the blockhouse had time to fire. The four shots came in a rather scattering volley, but they did the business. One of the enemy actually fell, and the rest, without hesitation, turned and plunged into the trees. After reloading, we walked down the outside of the palisade to see the fallen enemy. He was stone dead, shot through the heart. We began to rejoice over our good success when just at that moment a pistol cracked in the bush. A ball whistled close past my ear and poor Tom Redruth stumbled and fell his length on the ground. Both the squire and I returned the shot but as we had nothing to aim at, it is probably we only wasted powder. Then we reloaded and turned our attention to poor Tom. The captain and Gray were already examining him, and I saw with half an eye that all was over. I believe the readiness of our return volley scattered the mutineers once more, for they did not cause further molestation as we got the poor old gamekeeper hoisted over the stockade and carried him, groaning and bleeding, into the log house. Poor old fellow, he had not uttered one word of surprise, complaint, fear, or even acquiescence from the very beginning of our troubles till now, when we laid him down in the log house to die. He laid there like a Trojan behind his mattress in the gallery. He followed every order silently, doggedly, and well. He was the oldest of our party by a score of years, and now the sullen, old, serviceable servant was dying. The squire dropped down beside him on his knees and kissed his hand, crying like a child. "'Be I going, doctor?' he asked. "'Tom, my man,' said I, "'you're going home.' "'I wish I had a lick at them with a the gun first, he replied. "'Tom,' said the squire. Say you forgive me, won't you? Would that be respectful like from me to you, squire? Was the answer. Howsoever, so be it. Amen. After a little while of silence, he said he thought somebody might read a prayer. It's the custom, sir, he added apologetically, and not long after, without another word, he passed away. In the meantime, the captain, whom I observed to be wonderfully swollen about the chest and pockets, had turned out a great many various stores. The British colors, a Bible, a coil of stoutish rope, pen, ink, the log book, and pounds of tobacco. He found a longish fir tree lying felled and trimmed in the enclosure, and with the help of Hunter, he set it up at the corner of the log house where the trunks crossed and made an angle. Then, climbing on the roof, he, with his own hand, bent and run up the colors. This seemed mightily to relieve him. 
He re-entered the log house and set about counting up the stores as if nothing else existed. But he eyed Tom's passage for all that, and as soon as he completed his task, came forward with another flag and reverently spread it on Tom Redruth's body. "'Don't you take on, sir,' he said to the squire, shaking his hand. "'All's well with him.' No fear for a hand that's been shot down in his duty to captain and owner. It mayn't be good divinity, but it's a fact. Then he pulled me aside. Dr. Livesey, he said, in how many weeks do you and Squire expect the consort? Remembering the deal Squire Trelawney made with the consort in Bristol. I told him it was a question not of weeks, but months, that if we were not back by the end of August... Blandly would send to find us, but neither sooner nor later. You can calculate for yourself, I said. Why, yes, returned the captain, scratching his head, and making a large allowance, sir, for all the gifts of providence, I should say we were pretty close-hauled. How do you mean? I asked. It's a pity, sir, we lost that second load. That's what I mean, replied the captain. As for powder and shot, we'll do. But the rations are short, very short, so short, Dr. Livesey, that we're perhaps as well without that extra mouth. And he pointed to the dead body under the flag. Just then, with a roar and a whistle, a round shot passed high above the roof of the log house and plumped far beyond us in the wood. Oh, said the captain, Blaze away. You've little enough powder already, my lads. At the second trial, the aim was better, and the ball descended inside the stockade, scattering a cloud of sand, but doing no further damage. Captain, said the squire, the house is quite invisible from the ship. It must be the flag they are aiming at. Would it not be wiser to take it in? Strike my colors, cried the captain, no, sir, not I. And as soon as he had said the words, I think we all agreed with him. For it was not only a piece of stout, seemingly good feeling, it was good policy besides, and showed our enemies that we despised their cannonade. All through the evening they kept thundering away. Ball after ball flew over, or fell short, or kicked up the sand in the enclosure, but they had to fire so high that the shot fell dead and buried itself in the soft sand. We had no ricochet to fear, and though one popped in through the roof of the log house and out again through the floor, we soon got used to that sort of horseplay and minded it no more than a cricket. There is one good thing about all this, observed the captain. The wood in front of us is likely clear. The ebb has made a good while uncovering our stores. Volunteers to go and bring in pork? Gray and Hunter came forward without hesitation. Well armed, they stole out of the stockade, but it proved a useless mission. The mutineers were bolder than we fancied, or they put more trust in Israel's gunnery. For four or five of them carried off our stores, wading out with them to one of the gigs that lay close by, pulling an oar or so to hold her steady against the current. Silver was in the stern sheets in command, and every man of them now held a musket from some secret magazine of their own. The captain sat down to his log, 
and here is the beginning of the entry. Alexander Smollett, Master. David Livesey, Ship's Doctor. Abraham Gray, Carpenter's Mate. John Trelawney, Owner. John Hunter and Richard Joyce, Owner's Servants, Landsmen, being all that is left faithful of the ship's company. With stores for ten days at short rations, came ashore this day and flew British colors on the log house in Treasure Island. Thomas Redruth, owner's servant, landsman, shot by the mutineers, James Hawkins, cabin boy, and at the same time I wondered over poor Jim Hawkins's fate when we heard a hail on the land side. Somebody hailing us, said Hunter, who was on guard. Doctor, squire, captain, Hello! Hunter! Is that you? came the cries. And I ran to the door in time to see Jim Hawkins, safe and sound, come climbing over the stockade. That concludes this episode of Ken Reads the Classics. Join us next time when Jim picks up the story and continues the narrative.